Okay, well again, welcome. Glad you're able to be here. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out the technology side of things here while we're doing it live. Um, all right, bring that up. All right, thanks, John. Thanks, uh, Zach, for, for leading us today. All right, we are in week six of Second uh, Peter. So uh, I do have a PowerPoint. It's just if you go on the Facebook Live, just mute your phone, and there'll be a little bit of delay. But there is a PowerPoint, not a lot. It's really just the scriptures. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, you, can, you can look on there as well. Um, this is week six. So this, uh, this last week, I was uh, talking with my cousin a little bit. And we, um, from time to time, we'll, we'll play video games together. And we just kind of went down nostalgia lane. And we were talking about Punch-Out. Does anyone remember the, the NES game, the Nintendo system game Punch-Out? Uh, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. It came out in 87, and uh, which I was only two in 87, so it wasn't like I was playing as a two-year-old. Uh, but, it, you know, the NES, it held its, its uh, time, and it was just this, this game that I just remember just love playing. And, of course, Mike Tyson's like the main last boss that was impossible uh, to beat. Um, and, and so I bring that up because I don't know if any of you have ever boxed um, but it's it's not an easy sport. Uh, I've only done it uh, maybe twice, just kind of as like a fun thing. It wasn't like a, a professional thing by any stretch of the imagination. But put gloves on, uh, you know, got in a ring with somebody and and went went to town. And I'm terrible, and I didn't realize how exhausting it actually is. And I bring that up because Peter and I've said this before, but for sure today. Peter's not pulling his punches, all right? Pulling your punches just means that I'm not hitting as hard or I'm, I'm not swinging, I'm not following all the way through, um, right? It's just, it's just haymaker, haymaker, haymaker. He's just, this passage, right? If this is like, if you're checking out Christianity, you're kicking the tires of Christianity, you're checking out hope, you saw that we were online, saw that we were live. Uh, this is, if, if you were gonna relaunch a church in your third year anniversary, this probably isn't the passage that you would, that you would probably pick. And, and yet, because the way that we preach here, expository uh, preaching and just walking through a passage of scripture, um, this would be an easy one to skip. This would be an easy one to say, man, this is convicting, this is hard. And yet, hopefully by the end, we can walk away from here feeling very refreshed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is uh, week six, and I've entitled this uh, sermon, uh, Grace which rescues us from ourselves. Last week it was grace which rescues. This week, though, it's now grace which rescues us from ourselves. And we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10b through 22. So it's kind of a longer chunk of scripture. And so I'm not going to read it all at once, but we'll read the whole thing eventually. So this will be 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 10. But again, I want to go back. I want to give a little bit of context because it really helps uh, the apostle Peter, the first week, he says, you've been given this gift of faith, right? I'm, I'm, God has said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you faith to be able to believe in me. Week two, uh, our elder, one of our elders, Paul, uh, preached about how God gives us everything we need, grace upon grace in our life. The third week, we're looking at working out our faith, that our, that our faith, if it's real and true, should be evidenced in our actions, and then Paul, or excuse me, Peter says, so I will always remind you of these things. Peter says, I'm always going to bring this in front of you. I'm going to teach you the gospel, the foundation of Jesus Christ, and remind you of this over and over and over. And then last week, looking at 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, 
uh, we see kind of three aspects. In the first one, in verses one through three, we are, we are introduced to these false teachers. And so we have the sins of the false teachers that are recounted. And so it says there in Second Peter chapter uh, two, it says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And, and today, what I wanna focus on is that among you. When I look out among faces that are covered in masks, familiar faces, and I wonder, am, am I a false teacher? Am I, a, am I divisive? Am I manipulative in my theology and my teaching? Are, are you a false teacher to yourself, to others around you? And so today might be convicting, and I hope that there is repentance among all of us and yet at the same time, a time of healing and a time of grace, a grace that rescues. Peter says, continuing then in the first couple of verses, says they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of the truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories and their condemnation has been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And so we saw then the sins of the false teachers recounted and then last week looking at their, the teachers will be judged. And Peter then gives three examples. If God did not spare the angels, these evil angels from sins that they committed, and if he did not spare the ancient world and their debauchery with a flood, and if he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, then I'm telling you right now, these false teachers, day in court is coming. Judgment day is coming. You can't run from it. You might think that you're prospering now in this life, but I'm telling you right now, judgment day is coming. So then we see, and he's going to zoom in, and he's going to now then look at the sins of the false teachers being elaborated for us in this passage. And so the first chunk, he's going to then say, we're going to look at the character of these false teachers. So he's going to take this time in this chunk of, of, of scripture that we're looking at, and he's going to elaborate. He's going to zoom in on these false teachers. And is there anything about these false teachers that is true of, of me or is true of you? So he says, he says this in our passage that we're looking at in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. He says, bold and arrogant. Right? Being bold is not necessarily a bad thing, right? To have confidence in something. Uh, a little over three years ago when, when uh, Steve Treichler was talking about doing this, doing a location, I walked into his office and I said, I think I, I can do this. I think, I, I think I've been equipped. I'm trained for this. I think I can do this. And I was bold in that. But I was sure, hopefully, I was, there was definitely a little bit of arrogance. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But at the same time, I knew that I could learn. But there's, when we're arrogant, right? Think of an interview. I don't know how many of you have sat in interviews. I used to sit in a big room of, of it was like a group, group interviews. Terrib don't do group interviews. I don't know why that was ever a thing, but it was apparently. Um, and, and what would happen is people would, would seem very confident and then you'd hire them and then they'd be like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've got no clue what's going on here. And it's just like, why were you so confident in that? And now we got to fire you because <laughs> that's, not, that's not how this works. Um, and that's not good. But yet these these false teachers, they're bold in the, in the proclamations they're saying, but they don't know what they're talking about. 
He says this, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. And I'm not going to get into it, but we talked about this last week. These are fallen angels. These are evil celestial beings. And we kind of lose it in our translation into English, but that's, that's what it is. And he says, but yet even angels, and now he's talking about the good angels. All right, he says, yet even these good angels, although they are stronger and more powerful than the evil angels that have fallen, even these angels do not heap abuse on such beings when they bring judgment on them from the Lord. In other words, God is the one that's judging them. And even though the angels are the ones carrying out the judgment or delivering the message to the evil angels, that they don't even say something in condemnation to them. They say, that's not their place. That's only God's place. Even Michael in the end, when we get to the book of Revelation, which maybe someday we'll go through the book of Revelation. We will, I'm sure. But when we look at that, even Michael, the archangel, he doesn't condemn Lucifer, Satan. He just does the judgment that God has condemned Lucifer for. And yet these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand, right? And a lot of this, again, goes back to they don't believe in a final judgment. And if you don't believe in a final judgment, well, you can make fun of these angels all you want. And make fun of the demonic realm, whatever it may be. It's not, it's not real. They are like unreasoning animals. They have no reason. Creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They operate on desires and feelings rather than reason. Skipping then to, not skipping, we're going right in order here. <laughs> Moving forward to verse 13, it says that they will be paid back harm for harm that they have done. Peter here, the more I study Peter, I say this every week since we've been in Second Peter, but the more I study Peter, I realize this guy is really smart. There's a reason why Jesus said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I think a lot of times Paul and his letter to the Romans gets all the glory. I'm telling you, going through First and Second Peter has been amazing. And here, Peter, in our English translation, says they will be paid back harm for the harm that they have done. And yet, if we translate it literally, it says they will be paid back uh, with, they will be harmed for unrighteous wages. Unrighteous wages. Right? That, that they did something that they said, hey, you're going to serve me, do this thing without being paid back the way that you should be. In other words, you won't enjoy the profits gained by taking advantage of your evil actions, of taking advantage of people with your evil actions. Right? So Peter, right, he's kind of a wordsmith, right? It's a, it's a way to say that you're going to reap what you sow. That's what Jesus said. There's a lot of things going on here that Peter's hitting on this old kind of covenant way of living, of saying, you're going to live, you want to live by works? Then you better always live by works. You want to live by the law? Then you got to live by all of the law. But if you want to live by works, Jesus is telling us, and what Peter is telling us, what Paul tells us, if you want to live by the works, you're going to die by your works. And you cannot do this by yourself, that without Jesus the ones, these false teachers, that without Jesus, the one that you trusted in at one point and turned away from, Peter's going to talk about that in a minute, in order to take advantage of people, judgment day is coming. Peter's not pulling his punches here. You're going to get what you deserve. Moving on here, again, it says, they will be paid back with the harm for the harm that they have done. And it says their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad 
daylight. Now, what's that mean? It means they can't wait until it gets dark. But they literally can't wait till it gets dark. They actually are going to go and carouse early in the morning. Right? Uh, in other words, they might say, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. <laughs> oh, man, I want to think twice before we start using that again sometime. Huh? It's 5 o'clock somewhere. Eh, we can start drinking. I mean, there's a warning here. Ecclesiastes 10.16 says, Whoa, warning, destruction to you, O land, whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Isaiah 5.11, again, whoa, warning. To those who rise early in the morning to run after drinks, who stay up late until they are inflamed with wine. There's a warning here. They just can't wait until it gets dark to go party. And again, why? In this context, these false teachers are doing this in order to take advantage of people to manipulate, to twist, to say, hey, this is okay, let's go have fun, let's, let's party in the name of Jesus even, as we're going to see. It says they are blots and blemishes, revealing in their pleasures while they feast with you. Right, so while they're with other believers, and most likely when they ate the Lord's Supper, right, this has been a, a, a shift in culture and church history in the sense of the way we do communion to the Lord's Supper right now, right? We've got these tiny little plastic cups and we don't normally do that. Normally we'll go inside, we'll break bread together and we'll drink uh, some juice together. And that's our, our culture. But back then though, historically, that they would, they would meet and they would have a feast and part of that feast was then also to partake of the Lord's Supper. And, and so Paul condemns this in the, in the, in the book of Corinthians and to say that you're getting together and you're getting, you're getting drunk when you take the Lord's communion. And he's saying, this is not, and that's, and that's what, exactly what these false teachers are doing. That they're gathering believers together saying, hey, let's go ahead. We can party in the name of Jesus. Is it okay to have fun? Of course it is. I love hanging out with you. I love hanging out with my friends. Next week, by the way, next Sunday, I'm going to open up the garage. We can watch the Packers uh, beat the Vikings, right? Which is pretty crazy. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that. I, I can't believe that football is actually starting again, uh, which is pretty cool. All right, I digress. This is a serious passage, so let's focus. It says they were pursuing their own pleasure rather than the good of others. But they simply gathered together in the name of Jesus. Hey, let's gather together as a church, as believers, so we can take advantage of one another. They're pursuing their own pleasure rather than the good of others. And then he says this, verse 14, with eyes full of adultery, they never stopped sinning. The connection here with they never stop sinning goes back to their eyes. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. I'm going to go back. He's going to talk about that in a little bit, so I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. And they are experts in greed and a cursed brood. It says they are experts. That's where we actually get our word gymnasium. They're trained. They've worked out. They've, they've exercised to be able to manipulate people in their greed and in their pleasure. But I don't want to skip over with eyes of adultery. They never stopped sinning. I want to quote here uh, Schreiner. He says this in his commentary. He says, Peter's language is vivid and arresting. These people looked at every woman considering them as a potential candidate for adultery. And right, I know this isn't just a, a male thing. I think this is a male and female thing. Do we guard our eyes? It's the complete opposite 
of what Job said in Job 31, verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon one of my servants. It's the opposite of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, that to look lustfully upon somebody who's not your wife or your husband is to commit adultery already. There's actually a Greek pun that Peter's actually playing off here with the language that he uses here in the Greek, but the Greek pun was, a man with no shame does not have maidens in his eyes, but harlots. It's what C.S. Lewis called the harem of the mind. And we can sit here and we can live under the law and we can say, hey, don't, don't look lustfully at somebody. Yes, that's true, but why? Again, going on the foundation of Jesus Christ as my God and Savior, that that should motivate me to want to live right. Again, if you live by this law, you're going to die by it. And what Peter's saying, right, in Southern slang, I don't know if I've ever even used this word before, but y'all need Jesus, right? That's what Peter's saying. We can't do this on our own. He says they're a cursed brood. It's really children. I don't know why the NIV that what I'm reading from uses the word brood here, but it's, it's children. And he's saying you're going again the way of Israel. You're going again the way of the old covenant, thinking you can do this by good works, that you can fix yourself. Because again, in, moving forward here in verse 15, it says that they have left the straight way. There is a good way in Christ but they've wandered off to follow the way of Balaam. I'll explain Balaam, son of Bezer here in a minute, or Beor. He says uh, this, there's one way and there's another way. There's no, there's no third or fourth or fifth way when it comes to righteousness in the way of scripture. It is either follow Jesus or follow yourself. You either worship the King of Kings, the Lord of all the earth, or I worship whatever it else is instead. That we all worship something, we are worshipers of something, we idolize something, or we idolize Christ. When I was in, uh, I don't know, high school, college, something, I worked at a camp, and there was a, a, phrase, a phrase, a saying that we used to use all the time, and it was, uh, just, two sh- just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And it was just this catchy way, but it's exactly what this is. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. There's only two choices. It's one or the other, either or. It's either pleasing God or it's pleasing self. It's pursuing God or pursuing my own selfishness. It's a way of righteousness or a way of becoming animalistic, as he says, in my nature of doing my own instincts. It's a way of the flesh. So he says it's the way of Balaam. Balaam, and I'm not gonna get into this, but in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, he's a, he's a prophet. And yet he uses, this is exactly what false prophets are gonna do in the name of God. I'm telling you, this is what we need to do. This is what we ought to do. I'm telling you, this is what God wants Israel to do. And then he's gonna manipulate, even to the point that again, he becomes debased to where even his donkey actually says, "Uh, hey, Balaam, you're not doing this right. His donkey speaks to him. Hey, Timber, we're good. Glad that went this way and didn't bonk John in the back of the head. Sorry, bonk is a, a word I say to my kids. That was, a, that was a very dad word. Almost got bonked in the head. Don't bonk your head, guy. Um, it says this, uh, that this Balaam who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophets 
madness. By madness, it means going after his own flesh. Jesus shows up in the flesh. He demonstrates what it means to be truly human. And a human being, someone who's supposed to be a prophet, speaking the words of God, becomes animalistic, goes back to his debased instinct to take care of himself rather than care for others. And now an animal becomes more human in that story by telling him you've gone the wrong way. Are we animalistic? (laughs) Or are we pursuing to be truly human like Jesus? The second half now, the first one, as I mentioned, is the character of these false teachers. But now we're going to see the effect of these false teachers on others. He says, these people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. All right, it's like a mirage. I still don't understand the science behind mirages. You know, when you're driving down a highway or on a, or on a road on blacktop and it's hot and you see you see water. You can see the reflection. I've never, I just don't, I don't get it. And yet it's a real thing, right? And I, my mind immediately when I was thinking about mirages went back to Fievel Goes West. You know what I'm talking about? Somewhere out there, right? And, and he's out in the desert. Right? This is like part two, Fievel Goes West, right? The first one was Fievel Comes to America's Fievel Goes West. So it wasn't as popular. But in that one, he's out west and he's going through the desert and he sees these mirages and he thinks there's, there's water out in this desert and there's not. And you can imagine being in five shoes, if you will, a little mouse wandering through the desert, and you think you see water. And then you finally get up to it and you realize it's just more sand. That is the description here of the false prophets, that these people are springs without water. They get people's hopes up. They are mist driven by a storm. And here again in the language is a, is a play on, on knowledge, that they actually, instead of delivering and giving knowledge, that's a mist. It confuses rather than adds clarity. They're without hope and they're without clarity where people need it most. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth, again here going back to his first, they're, they're bold and they're arrogant. They, they mouth empty boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh and they entice people, right? This is the, the language that's used here is a word for a hunter or a fisherman. They use a reel with the worm and they entice a fish onto a hook and then it's too late. They appeal to their lustly desires of the flesh and entice the people who are just escaping from those who live in error. That this is to me one of the grossest things that a false teacher, whether it's a, a think of a, a big name, and again, I'm not gonna name names, but some, some individual you might be thinking of or maybe your own self to say, I'm gonna use the teachings of Jesus and I'm going to use that because he's a, yeah, he's a good teacher. He says some good things. And I'm going to turn away from Jesus so that I can take these people who are seeking. They're looking for help. They're looking for some other way because everything the world has offered is unsatisfying. And they say, there's got to be something more to life than what I've experienced so far. And as they take these seekers, they say, oh, yeah, let me tell you about this guy, Jesus. And they manipulate the words of Jesus They entice them, those who are just escaping the world. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. What am I a slave to? What are you a slave to? Is it greed? Is it power? Money? Sex? Self, comfort, right? What or who do I put my trust in? Do I believe in? 
Who do I bend the knee to? What do I bend my knee to? In what way am I a false teacher? I say this every single week in Galatians chapter five. Every single week since we've, well, not since we've started, but probably at least the last two years. I've ended every single sermon quoting Galatians chapter five that you, church, have been set free to be free, so let's not go back and submit ourselves under the yoke of slavery. That's what these false teachers are doing. They've been set free by Jesus, and they're saying, yeah, I don't want that. I'm going to go back and submit myself again under this yoke of slavery, but yet we have been set free. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. We, church, should be slaves to Christ and the teachings of Christ. He moves on and he says, they have escaped the corrupt nature of the world. By knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in it and are overcome. All right, do you hear that? So they, they knew Jesus. They, they turned to Jesus. This is a strong warning for anybody in here. Is this me? But they became entangled. They look back at the world and they say, oh, that looks good. It says that they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to have turned their backs in the sacred command that was passed on to them. It would have been better had you never known me, Jesus says. Because for you to say, I, I follow Jesus, and I've turned, I'm looking at Jesus, I love Jesus, I'm pursuing him, and then I turn away from him, I take my sight off him, I look back at the world, and I get enticed by worldly pleasures and desires. But in worse, as a false teacher, instead of just turning and going and running to the world and its pleasures, I actually take what I know about my Savior, and I say, oh man, yeah, you're, you're, you're a good teacher. I'm gonna, I've learned some things from you, but now I'm going to take what you taught me and use it for my own gain, and I'm going to run to the world and entice and entangle them. And Jesus and Peter here say, it would have been better had you never known me. Why? You're leading people astray. Jesus says this, it would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and thrown into a sea than for you to mislead these little ones. It's a strong saying. Then he says, as a dog, so of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that has washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. That if I'm trusting in myself and my own flesh, and I don't rely on Jesus and his freedom and his Holy Spirit to free me from my sin, I'm going to go back to my own vomit. I'm going to go back to that mud. So the question is, is there any hope? Right, because is this, is this me? Because there are things that Peter describes here where he's not pulling his punches, but I go, wow, man, I feel like I've seen myself do that before. I feel like I do that. I feel like I almost do that on a regular basis. I feel like I struggle with this thing consistently. So, is, so am I a false teacher? And I think the answer is yes, unless we're in Christ. Unless we keep our eyes on Christ. Is there any hope for a sinner like me? Do I continue to seek after my own gain? Have I rejected Christ in some way in my mind? Do I not follow him as Lord? Have I been enticed by the pleasures of this world? Is there any hope? Well, one of the biggest pieces of hope that I can offer this morning is purely the example of the author of the book that we're studying right now, Peter. That Peter at one point was a false teacher. 
that a Peter at one point could see the risen Lord with his eyes, could see him in the high priest's council being judged by Caiaphas. He could see him, and as he's out in the courtyard, they say, hey, Peter, aren't you a follower of that guy? And he looks at him, and he swears, and he says, I swear I do not know that man. And the rooster crows three times, and Peter realizes he's denied Jesus. But Peter repents, and he turns, and he continues to follow after Jesus because Jesus freely offers forgiveness. And I'm telling you right now, it doesn't matter how many times we've fallen flat in our face. It doesn't matter how many times if we take that language of C.S. Lewis, we go back to the slums and eat mud pies when he's offering us a holiday at the sea. And even though we've enjoyed holiday at the sea, we go, oh man, sometimes those mud pies look kind of yummy. You don't eat mud pies, I know. It's what we do. And Jesus over and over and over forgives and forgives and forgives. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Come to me, all of you who are carrying a heavy load of guilt, of shame, of sin, of desire. He says, I will give you rest. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. There's multiple times in this passage, three times, where Peter uses that language, the way. He says, don't rely on yourself. You've got to rely on me, the new covenant in my blood, not the old works-based covenant, because if you live by works, you die by works. If you live by the law, you die by the law. So then, in gospel application, which of these sins do we need to repent of today? Could be one, could be a lot, could be something I didn't even mention. What sins do we need to repent of today as a church, individually, corporately, And then secondly, are we turning from our sin to the freedom that we have in Christ? We've been set free to be free. True satisfaction the world cannot offer. We see that all around us, all around us, whether it's politically or or social or, 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 or justice, all these different things, there's all these plans that people have to fix it. Jesus Christ and the gospel is the hope of the world. The freedom that he offers Are we turning from our sin to the freedom that we have in Christ? Let me pray, and then we will have communion together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for our time together in the flesh, in person, eye to eye. God, I thank you for these words from Peter. These are hard. These are convicting. Are we seeking our own pleasure? Are we uh, committing sin with our eyes and in our hearts and our mind? Are we seeking after our own flesh to the detriment of others? Are we turning our backs on Jesus? Are we using the teachings of Jesus to manipulate others? God, help us. We cannot do this on our own. So God, I pray that as we enter into a time of communion that you would be the one in our hearts, that we would bow the knee to you first and foremost, and always, only. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.